Greetings, and welcome to Classic of Difficulties, difficult questions in medicine, acupuncture, and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. James Mohabali. I'm a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and I will be your armchair philosopher in residence and your tour guide as we try to ask some difficult questions about medicine, health, alternative medicine, and maybe the meaning of life. My goal in this podcast is that by asking and unpacking these tough questions, we will maybe leave with a couple of answers, but we will definitely leave with more questions than we had at the start. This is episode one. Why do babies puke so much? Part one, Darwin's giraffe. All right, this episode is going to be a three-parter. Yes, it is a big topic. It does not seem like it, but as it turns out, babies are pretty complicated. So in order to get to the bottom of this one, we will be talking about Chinese pediatrics, Western pediatrics, raising babies, and the perennial question of how come babies are so bad at everything? Full disclosure, I have a baby. She's a newborn, in fact, and she is incredible. And my wife is incredible for being pregnant with her and, well, making her and all that mysterious stuff that happens during pregnancy. Not to mention birthing her, but birth is a whole different episode, or a whole series of episodes. It is a very, very complex topic. But back to our baby. She is amazing. She's perfect. She's beautiful. She's downstairs right now. And we love her more than anything else in the world. But she keeps puking on me, and peeing on me, and pooping. That one usually doesn't happen on me. Sometimes it does. That's in a diaper most of the time. And as my good friend John Hears, founder of First Things Foundation and creator of the very cool podcast, Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Shout out to Watar. Check it out. The link is in the notes below. So my good friend John asked when he saw her, and I'm paraphrasing, sorry, John, but why do babies puke so much? I mean, I don't puke that much. Well, John, to answer your question, we created a podcast and a YouTube channel, and it's a good question. If your average adult person needed another adult person to bounce them up and down and slap them in the back for two to five minutes after each meal, the world would be a very different place. I'm not sure we would get a whole lot done. The question becomes particularly interesting once you look at animals. Everyone knows the image. The baby giraffe falls out of the birth canal, plummeting five feet to the ground. Slam! And within half an hour, they can stand. And within ten hours, they can run alongside mom. What's more, it doesn't look like mom even bats an eye during the whole birth process. Then the babies are walking, and they're nursing, and soon enough they're eating solid foods, and eventually they have babies of their own, and hopefully, in this whole long process, no one gets eaten by a lion. On the other hand, when my little baby came out, she could barely even figure out how to nurse by herself. And the first time she had gas, it was like her whole world was ending. And I remember this very vividly, as you might imagine, because it felt like my whole world was ending too. So, why do giraffes have such an easy go of it? Well, let's start on familiar ground. Why does Western medicine think that human babies have a hard time hacking it? Well, Western medicine's primary philosophical ground is modern biological science. In fact, even though Western medicine tends to trace its roots back to Hippocrates, a famous Greek physician, you would barely see anything recognizable as modern Western medicine before the 1940s, when penicillin was first widely available. 
Even if we're being generous and you consider your neighborhood barber surgeon to be just as good as the Mayo Clinic, empirical science as we know it really didn't have anything to do with medicine until William Harvey posited the circulation of blood in 1628. Modern Western medicine is a scientific medicine. It's based on modern biology. And out of everyone in history, who is most responsible for the current shape of modern biology? Well, there's lots of people, but one sticks out in particular, and he sticks very far out. Charles Darwin. You can barely read a single page in an introductory biology textbook without encountering the theory of evolution, natural selection, and survival of the fittest. So let's see what Darwin thinks about giraffes. This quote is from the sixth edition of The Origin of Species, which, by the way, had lots of editions. It had six, in fact, and they were pretty different. Darwin's ideas changed a lot over time. For example, the term survival of the fittest wasn't even in the first edition. So picture it. It's Africa. It's a long time ago. It's a drought. There's all kinds of weird animals that you've never seen before walking around. This particular bunch of four-legged, hoofed animal is trying to eat its breakfast of twigs and leaves. But those trees, those trees are really high. So Darwin says, Those individuals which had some one part or several parts of their bodies rather more elongated than usual would generally have survived. These will have intercrossed, that's code for sex, and left offspring, either inheriting the same bodily peculiarities or with a tendency to vary again in the same manner. He goes on, By this process long continued, which exactly corresponds with what I have called unconscious selection by man, combined no doubt in a most important manner with the inherited effects of the increased use of parts, it seems to me almost certain that an ordinary hoofed quadruped might be converted into a giraffe. So, basically, the randomly taller giraffe happens to eat the leaves, so they don't die of famine, so they get to have babies. And then their babies, they're probably going to be taller. Generations and generations later, giraffe are really weird looking. And what's more, it has nothing to do with the fact that they wanted to eat the leaves. It just has to do with the fact that some giraffe were randomly born tall. Of course, it's more complicated than that. In the emerging science of epigenetics... We see that things like the parents' lifestyle, diseases they had, and even traumas they experienced in early childhood can cause genetic changes that are actually passed on to their children without directly affecting the genetic code itself. So all your ATs, Gs, and Cs are intact, but these methyl groups attach and change the expression of things. It's all very, very cool. But I digress. Looking at biological science and science as a whole, we see that the questions they are primarily interested in answering are how questions. How did that ball move when we dropped it? Galileo. How did a solid turn into a liquid? Or how did that giraffe get so tall? Every now and then, science has to make a little foray into metaphysics, but mostly they like to avoid it. So why is the giraffe tall isn't really something we can answer, The scientific answer would just be, it's chance, I guess. So what's wrong with human babies? Well, science says that everything is a bargain. Humans have this weird urge to stand upright, and that makes their pelvis a really different shape, a much tighter shape, than all those four-legged animals. 
We also want our babies to be really smart so that they can say words, read books, scroll through cat pics, and subscribe to this video. But that means that babies have giant heads. So we want the biggest head, but we want the tiniest hole in the pelvis. So something's got to give. So what gives? Well, babies are born relatively immature, and they mostly mature outside the womb. Sort of like some kind of kangaroo, but a little less dramatic. So babies are terrible at everything when they come out, and they get better over time. So it's a pretty good answer as to how, and it points to all the major players, namely brain, pelvis, upright posture, but it doesn't really tell us why. Cue Eastern medicine. Well, first, unlike modern Western medicine, which is more or less standardized wherever you go, Eastern medicine is extremely varied. It varies from place to place, country to country, it varies at different times in history, and it even varies from doctor to doctor and patient to patient. You see, Chinese thought is way more okay with relativism than Enlightenment thinking is. You can see this embodied in the concept of yin and yang. Yin is only yin relative to yang, and yin in comparison to one thing can be yang in comparison to another. It's super confusing. To clarify... Night is pretty yin, but you know what's more yin? Midnight. So then 9 p.m. actually seems pretty yang relative to midnight, but it's obviously way less yang than noon. So there's all this relativism built in. So the question is, we want to talk about Eastern medicine. What kind of Eastern medicine should we talk about first? Let's start with TCM. That is traditional Chinese medicine. And as my teacher, Dr. Bridie Andrews, a historian of Chinese medicine, once said, and again, I am paraphrasing, sorry, Bridie, if anyone claims that something is traditional, then you know that it is anything but. So, long story short, traditional Chinese medicine started in the 1950s in modern communist China. They tried to make a system of medicine that worked well with Western medicine, it worked well with science, it was easy to learn, and it got rid of all that weird, spooky stuff that Marx might think sounded too religious. And even though every system has its shortcomings, TCM is a pretty good system. And it's the main form of Chinese medicine practiced in the Chinese hospital system, and it's the main form of Chinese medicine that's taught and practiced in the United States. If you're going to take your board exams, you better know TCM. Well, according to TCM, babies are born with weak spleens. It's a good answer, right? In Chinese medicine, the spleen is a digestive organ. I know, that's weird, but go with it. And when the spleen is weak, people, or babies, they have trouble digesting food, trouble keeping it down, trouble moving their bowels, using their muscles, thinking clearly. You might need to take a nap after eating, which my little baby loves doing. So what does this really mean? Well, to understand that, we have to understand how Chinese medicine thinks about organs. Western medicine is fundamentally an anatomical medicine. It's based primarily on dissection and the structures that detailed dissection of cadavers can reveal. This means that when Western medicine talks about organs, they are only talking about that hunk of flesh located exactly here and connected to that other hunk of flesh by this artery, that vein, and those nerves. And in general, Chinese medicine is talking about a lot more than that. Think about it this way. 
Imagine the body as a village. In the village, you have different buildings with different functions. There's going to be the bank. There's going to be the granary where the grains are stored. There's going to be the mayor's office. And there's going to be the town dump. So when Western medicine looks at the granary, it looks at the size of it and the shape of it. It's this many feet tall, that many feet long. It looks at the contents of it, namely lots and lots of grains. And it looks at the interactions and exchanges that happen there. Grains come in, grains go out, and sometimes grains get moldy. What it doesn't take into account is the bigger picture. And it can't, because science is fundamentally analytical. It breaks things down into the smallest intelligible pieces... The thing that it misses about the granary is that is the relationship that the town people have to the granary. When the granary starts to get low, the townspeople start to worry. Their worry and anxiety gets worse every single time that they sit down to smaller and smaller meals. These smaller meals start to strain the family relationships, and the family inevitably starts to break apart. So this is the spleen in Chinese medicine. Deficiency of the spleen doesn't just cause digestive weakness, it can also cause anxiety and worry, and in a broader sense, it can either cause or be caused by weak family relationships. So it's not just about the townspeople and their relationships. It's In Chinese medicine, we also tend to think of things in terms of climate and underlying terrain, or heaven and earth for short. So Why is the granary empty? Well, the weather was unseasonable and made a bad growing season. Heaven. Or maybe the villagers decided to set up their village in an area that doesn't have fertile soil, and their farming practices depleted the land, resulting in poor yields. That would be earth. So fundamental to Chinese medical thought is the idea that man is in a relationship with heaven and earth and cannot be conceived of apart from these things. I'll say that again. Just like yin is only yin relative to yang, man is only man when conceived of in terms of his role in mediating heaven and earth. Without heaven, man has no purpose. And without earth, man has no foundation. Just like our feet touch the ground and our head points towards the sky, our whole being is designed to mediate between up and down, between heaven and earth. So to the Chinese it doesn't make any sense to think about the dimensions of the granary without first asking about everything else around the granary. The town, the bank, heaven, and earth. And this is the really cool part. All of this is actually encoded in Chinese language, so that they don't necessarily have to talk about it directly. You see, Chinese writing is made up of tiny little pictures. These pictures are each called radicals, and every word is actually made up of these radicals. Sometimes the pictures are really complicated, and there's like a lot of different radicals put together. Other times they're very, very simple, and it can even be just one little picture. In Chinese medicine, we think of the spleen as being the granary of the body. The spleen receives the grains from the stomach, and then allocates it to various purposes. And where do grains come from? Well, they're grown in the field. So what is the character for stomach in Chinese? The word is wei, and it's composed of two radicals, two little pictures. One of them, which is included in any word for an organ except the heart, is the flesh radical. It means that whatever the word is, it has something to do with flesh. The other one is a little picture of a field, 
So the question is, what is the stomach in Chinese thought? Well, it's where the grains come from. It's like a field, but it's flesh. So all of this is encoded in the language. So when we say spleen, we don't just mean the little hunk of flesh that's next to the pancreas and located under the left rib cage. We also mean the whole body's relationship to nourishment, from the terrain to the climate to the families that eat the grains. So when I say spleen, you should ask yourself, does this nourish me? Does my food nourish me? Does my job nourish me? Do my family relationships nourish me? And so on. Fun fact, spleen deficiency is like TCM's number two diagnosis, second only to liver cheese stagnation. Why, you might ask? I think it's pretty easy to see from what I was just saying. How many people can really say that everything that they're doing is just the most nourishing and awesome thing that they've ever done, and that it fosters really deep human connection? But I digress. Now we need to talk about the next important idea for understanding Chinese medicine. One of the key axioms in Chinese medical thought is that the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm, and vice versa. The little mirrors the big, and the big mirrors the little. So just like human body cells have walls, so do castles. And just like castles have kings, so does the human body. That's the heart, by the way, the king. So this analogy about granaries, it's really not just an analogy. In some sense, the spleen is a granary. And in some sense, when you're walking through the village and you see that granary, that's actually a spleen. So returning to our little helpless baby friends, what's the problem? Well, the problem, from this perspective, is that their granary, their whole mechanism for survival in this life, is really weak. Or as we say, their postnatal chi, that is their post-birth chi, is weak. The granary is all about meals together, and it's all about families and relationships with your ancestors. You eat like your parents ate, they ate like their parents ate, and they ate like their parents ate. And all of that food grows out of the land that your family has lived on and farmed on for generations and generations. But what if your parents eat really weird stuff, like crickets? Or maybe they eat even weirder stuff, like Twinkies. Well, your spleen gets to grow alongside your parents' diet. And your understanding of family dynamics gets to grow alongside your family. So why do babies have weak spleens, weak postnatal chi? It's because they don't know what the postnatal world is about yet. It's because humans are amazingly adaptable, and they can eat pretty much anything, including crickets and Twinkies. And because who we are in this world is really partially determined by the family that we're born into. Not only that, but also by our village, on the land where we live. We have all this prenatal stuff, which has to do with our kidneys, but all this postnatal stuff is really pretty flexible. Sounds too abstract for you? Well, think about your intestinal microbiome. As modern science is now learning, your gut bacteria is so essential to how you digest food, and it's also really important for immunity, for making neurotransmitters that then affect our mood, and lots more stuff. But where does our gut bacteria come from? It comes from mom during the birthing process. It comes from laying on her skin as we nursed. It comes from the food we eat. And it comes from the soil where the food was grown. So what happens when our gut bacteria tries to do something new and different, like Mexican tap water? Well, Montezuma's revenge, as they say. 
Mexican people's gut microbiomes are used to the tap water, though, so they can drink it without any problems. But here's the cool part. In TCM, or traditional Chinese medicine, we don't have to mention all this family, terrain, microbiome stuff. It's all encoded into our idea of the spleen. So what's wrong with babies? Weak spleens. And what do you do if there's a problem? Well, you strengthen the spleen. And how do you do that? We have all these herbs, acupuncture, lifestyle, all these therapeutic methods that we figured out over generations and generations work to strengthen spleens. And all that stuff that we talked about, that's just in the mainstream of Chinese medicine. There's a whole world of different approaches in Chinese medicine. Some of them are very old, some very modern, and all of them are very interesting. Another theory of infant development has to do with the acupuncture channels themselves. Another one has to do with the fact that they're born with a big hole in their skull, namely the fontanelle. There's even another theory that has to do with a completely different set of acupuncture channels called the Extraordinary Vessels. But, unfortunately, we are out of time in this, our first episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and hopefully you learned a little something, and hopefully we will see you next time as we dive into some of these alternate theories of infant development. They are, to say the very least, extraordinary. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure to like and subscribe, and be sure to tune in to our next episode, Why Do Babies Puke So Much? Part 2. Too puke, too furious. So until next time, keep asking questions and stay difficult. Thank you for listening to this episode of Classic of Difficulties. We hope that you enjoyed our explorations today, and we hope that you'll tune in next time for more difficult questions. If you have any topics you want us to cover, or any awesome health professional you know that you'd love to see us interview, we would love to meet them. So reach out and let us know. Please share this episode with your friends, your family, your co-workers, your enemies, and everyone in between. Your interaction and support helps us keep making the content we love to make and that you love to listen to.